Thank you, ladies. Thank you for worshiping together, church. I'm going to invite your attention into the Gospel of John again in John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18. And our kids' children's church age, you all may be dismissed to children's church at this time. Grateful to Brother Will for preaching last week. Grateful to all our chaperones who went to youth camp this week. You all are awesome. Thank you for taking care of our kids. Hope you've gotten some sleep this weekend. Um, And I'll give you a little bit of a pass if I catch you nodding this morning. Okay, but uh, hopefully we're ready to hear God's word, excited about it. I don't think you're going to be sleeping. God has so much to say to us about the powerful, wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus in the text that we are going to explore today. A small view of Jesus is tragic. A wrong view of Jesus is tragic. There is an ancient heresy called Arianism that denied the full deity of Jesus. We need a big view of Jesus. The Bible shows Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Not half God, not half man. And if we lose either Jesus' full humanity or full deity we are out of step with the bible and so how might this play out in a church where we have a small view of jesus well there's been a mentality of jesus is my buddy that has infected the church in recent decades and what you might often find accompanying that idea is the idea that jesus will never disapprove of my lifestyle As fully God, Jesus cannot be an add-on to our lives. He must be the authoritative Lord of our lives. So today I invite you to see Jesus as bigger as we look at this text. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in reverence for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to look at John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, 
My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let us pray. Father, I praise you for this story that you have given us so graciously in your word. I praise you that it's not just a healing, but a declaration that you are equal with God. And as the authoritative Lord, I pray for a church to joyfully submit to you. And Father, I pray for those under the sound of my voice that there would no longer be rebellion against the authority of Jesus, but rejoicing under the authority of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're coming into the territory of John's Gospel where we see escalating conflict between Jesus and religious leaders. What happens here as an effect of this healing will eventually, along with some other similar things, result in religious leaders crucifying Jesus. So yes, we see a miraculous healing at this pool, but there's a lot more going on. So Jesus goes to this particular pool in Jerusalem where many sick people gathered. And the reason they congregate here is because of a superstition that an angel stirred the waters of the pool and the first one in would be healed. Now, if you have a King James translation, it it will say that around verses 3 and 4. If you have a newer translation, you may have a footnote that shows that. And maybe helpful explanation of that is since the King James Version came out around 1611, we found New Testament manuscripts that go back closer to the original. So you had copies of copies of copies of copies, and we found some of the older copies. And those older copies do not have that language of the angel stirring the water. So it's thought that copyists likely added that over the years. But either way, There's a superstition that an angel stirred the waters and brought healing. But people like myths. And by the way, let me say this. Whatever translation you have, some people ask me what translation I usually preach out of the ESV. Here's my suggestion about what translation you read. Whichever one you'll read, read it. Whichever one you'll dig into on a regular basis, dig into it. All right, so back into this. There's a the superstition that people seem to gravitate to. And here is this invalid. And he has been that way for 38 years. And he's bought into this. He comes to the pool when he expects the water to be stirred, hoping to be healed. And I'm guessing he's come to this pool year after year. And you can see that likely year after year, he has left disappointed still leaving as an invalid. But in John 5, it's no angel who shows up. It's the Savior of the world. And verse 6 gives us some information that the invalid didn't have prior to this. Jesus knew the man had been there a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Now, 
Could someone, could that man have told Jesus those facts? Yes, he could have. But in John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus' divine knowledge already. Back in chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathanael under the fig tree and knew that this was an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He knew that by his divine knowledge. In John chapter 4, he knew that the woman at the well had been married five times and the person that she currently lives with is not her husband. He knew that by his divine knowledge. So in an account where we're going to see Jesus is equal with God, it is not out of bounds, I think, to think Jesus knows this man's condition by his divine knowledge. Jesus is greater than superstition. Now we may say, well, that's back in ancient days. They had these superstitions and we don't have those anymore. But I want to hold us up right there. There is a dangerous southern culture type superstition that almost treats Jesus like a lucky rabbit's foot. If we, at one point, walked an aisle, if we go to church on occasion, if we have some Sunday school background, then surely we're good with God. Surely as long as we know some facts about Jesus, surely as long as we know some Bible stories, we're okay. But in a text, we're, we're seeing the authority of Jesus where we're seeing that he is equal with God. We should know that apart from submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord in our lives, nothing else is enough. This is a text declaring Jesus' authority. And he is to be submitted to as Lord, not nodded to as some generic Savior. So Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? Now the man doesn't exactly answer the question, does he? He speaks of his inability to get into the water first. So in his mind, the only possibility for him to leave that place well is for him to get in the water first. And here's this guy showing up that this man doesn't know and he asks what must seem like an absurd question to him. Do you want to be healed? I mean, he's at the pool for the purpose of being healed, right? Of course he wants to be healed. Some of our people uh, we, we're praying for, some have some difficult situations going on, uh, some have heart issues, and maybe you know of some other folks who have some other physical issues that are going on, and if we ask any of them, do you want to be healed? Well, they look at us like, we're crazy, right? Of course they'd rather be healed than to have these infirmities. So why did Jesus ask this guy the question? Now think about this man and where, where this whole account has been. His eyes are on the pool. He thinks only the water can bring healing. And the great physician stands before him. Yet all he can talk about is the pool. He hasn't seen that Jesus is greater than his paralysis. So Jesus, do you want to be healed? Man, nobody's, nobody's putting me in the pool. And Jesus responds, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Jesus is saying, I'm here. You can, you can forget the pool. 
You don't need the pool. I am here in person. Turn your eyes away from the pool. Look to me. And we may ask, well, how does this apply to us? Well, so many people today are looking for joy, looking for purpose, looking for life, and they're looking in the wrong place. They're looking to this world to be able to provide that. Similar to how this guy looks at the water for a healing. Church, Jesus says to us in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I can't, they may have life and have it abundantly. People are searching for life, abundant life, in all kinds of inferior things today in this world. Maybe it's social media popularity maybe it's materialism maybe it's good things like exercise and education but they have made those ultimate things but until we look to Christ for life for joy for purpose we are going to be disappointed so Jesus speaks to this man who is so fascinated with the pool and says get up take up your bed and walk this, this account is about Jesus' authority, and a facet of that is his power. And here this man is given this simple command by this guy that he doesn't really know. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. But this man has power that is different than any other man. Because the next verse, verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed. Jesus spoke, muscles are strengthened, dead tissue comes alive. He is completely healed and now able to take up his bed and walk. Folks, Jesus is greater than superstition. Jesus is also greater than any and every sickness. We should, when people are sick, we should and do pray for healing. And we should also recognize that divine healing isn't always God's will. If you look at this account, Jesus heals one man. He has power over every sickness. He's Lord over it all, but he heals one man. And we may wonder, well, we look at verse 3, and the description is there's a multitude of invalids there, blind, lame, paralyzed. Why didn't Jesus heal them? And we aren't told. But it must be for the purposes of God. He has reasons for healing this man. And folks, he has reasons for not healing others. So we pray for healing. We ask, and sometimes God does, in his grace, heal people. And we rejoice when that's the case, that it's his will to heal. But we also sometimes recognize that it is not God's will to heal on this earth. And folks, we see from such a limited perspective, we have such a finite view of things. And in our finite view, we would think, well, God would be most glorified by always granting physical healing. But God has a different perspective. He has an unlimited, infinite perspective. And sometimes he is more glorified in not healing but sustaining a believer and using 
that situation to conform that believer more to the image of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God may use a a situation where there is hardship and difficulty to draw someone to saving faith in Jesus. And we submit to Jesus' authority when He does heal. We submit to Jesus' authority when He chooses not to heal as we trust in His wisdom. And this account goes against the grain a bit of what you hear often amongst a, a faith healing type of, of environment. And they, they would say, if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, look at this guy. This man is healed, and he displays no faith in Jesus. John's Gospel has 21 chapters. I've told you that regularly, 21 chapters, 98 times in the Gospel of John, the word believe, the verb believe is there. Well, we don't see the word believe hear about this man I don't see this guy's faith I read one commentator that I respect who talked about this man's faith I don't see it this guy's not putting his faith in Jesus he doesn't even know his name before or after he's healed now eventually he gets it from Jesus but he doesn't know his name all right so why did Jesus heal this man I think he's doing at least two things here. I think it's important that we see these two things. Number one, individually, personally, he shows mercy to a sinner and warns him to repent. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. But secondly, on a bigger perspective, he used the healing to make a massive statement about who he is. He uses this as a platform to show he is equal with God. Now listen, if if the story ends in the middle of verse 9, we are preaching a different sermon. Okay? In that sermon, we would focus on Jesus' power over disease, and certainly we have already, but I don't think that's ultimately why Jesus did the miracle or why John included it in his gospel. See, nobody has a problem if this story ends after eight and a half verses. Nobody has an issue if this happened on Tuesday. But there's a clear break in the middle of verse 9. And I think we should see the first sentence of 9b as loaded with significance. Now that day was the Sabbath. You can almost hear the organ, dun, 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 after that. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now this introduces a whole new element to the story. Please don't think Jesus healed the guy and said, oh no, I didn't check my calendar. It's Saturday, I messed up. Jesus did not do that. In fact, I think Jesus purposely healed this guy on the Sabbath to show a crucial truth about who he is and to invoke this conversation with the Pharisees or the, or the Jews, the religious leader, uh, leaders. So let's, let's go back. Put yourself in this man's place. 38 years you've been an invalid. Now that's longer than... Some people lived 
in ancient times. Do you think this guy is excited that he's healed? Do you think he's excited about no longer being handicapped? Of course he is. And on a day when there should be great rejoicing, he is met with condemnation. There's a group called the Jews that show up. Now the title, the Jews, in John's Gospel often refers to these religious leaders who oppose and eventually kill Jesus. So the Jews, if you see that in, in this story, they're, they're the villains here. The Jews show up. They don't celebrate with this man. They don't rejoice over his healing. What do they do? They nitpick that he's carrying his mat. It takes one verse, church, for them to find him and accuse him. The man is healed in verse 9 and condemned by them in verse 10. It is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. How dare you? 38 years healed and now you're carrying your bed. You see no rejoicing, no celebrating. Well, this centers around Sabbath, right? If we don't understand Sabbath, we don't understand what's going on here. Was Sabbath keeping important in Israel? Absolutely it was. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? I want us to see an explanation of this in Exodus chapter 31. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. All right, so you see, Sabbath keeping is crucially important in Israel. We are not diminishing the importance of it. But I want you to see in that text, what we don't get is a lot of specifics. In other words, not every life situation is fleshed out to say, well, this is work and this is not work. But what we do eventually get is Jewish religious leaders trying to codify a text like this and make it specific in lots of life situations. So a later Jewish writing called the Talmud. This is written by Jewish leaders, Jewish rabbis. And it specified 39 different categories of work that were prohibited. So they are making specifics about what I don't think God ever intended to do. Let me give you an example. R. Kent Hughes gave an example that says, you could spit on the Sabbath, but be careful. Because if you happen to spit on the dirt and scrape it with their sandal, you might be guilty of working the soil, and then you are guilty of work. Do you see how specific and detailed, and folks, let's just say it, silly, something like that is? But here's what they're doing. They put man-made rules in place that eventually for them took precedence over God's law. So that's what they're doing here. 
Their law said you can't carry something on the Sabbath, which is what this man is doing. I don't think God ever intended to be so restrictive with that. I think God gave the Sabbath as a blessing so that the people would take a day off from work. But I don't think he put it into micromanage every bit of minutia in every aspect of their lives. In fact, Jesus shows the blessing of Sabbath in Mark chapter 2, verses 27-28. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is, leaving, even Lord, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what is it when the Jews elevated their own man-made traditions above the Word of God? Here's what that is. Legalism. That's what legalism is. Legalists are not the life of the party, folks. The Pharisees are killjoys. Don't invite them to your parties. They're going to ruin it. Legalism is not fun. Here is a guy who has been an invalid for 38 years. He is healed. They should be rejoicing, and they throw a wet blanket over the entire healing. Folks, you will not find a happy legalist. That is like finding a married bachelor. Neither one of those exists. Now listen, I believe Christians who obey God's word are the happiest people on the planet. And that is a crucial part of how I want to apply this text is that we are to obey the word of God. There is life, there is joy in that. But when we elevate man-made traditions and seek to obey them, that, folks, is exhausting and there's not life in it. What does that look like? Well, Maybe it's measuring the length of hair or making massive declarations about sideburns. There is just not life in that, and it's not a marker of holiness. So hear me, obedience to God's word is great joy. Legalistic observance of man-made rules is exhausting. They should have been celebrating. They're not. So here is this accusation against the healed man. Now, how will he react to the Jews who accuse him of Sabbath breaking? Here's how he responds. I'm going to blame the guy who healed me. I'm going to throw the guy under the bus who freed me from my disease of 38 years. Folks, can I just tell you that this healed man in John chapter 5 is virtually unlikable. He first blames Jesus, and then later he tattles on Jesus. So I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like this guy very much. Now, there's a big difference between him and the blind man that's healed in chapter 9. I like that guy. He's healed. He stands up for Jesus. He's not afraid to stand against the Jewish religious rulers. I like that guy. But the paralyzed man, you see, he's freed from disease. And then he says in verse 11, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So now the Jews are upset with the healed guy, but once he said that, if there's a guy telling him to break Sabbath, well, that guy's the real problem. So who was it? The man doesn't even know. Now think about this. If you went to a doctor and you had a disease for 38 years and he gives you some miracle cure, you're probably going to get his name. You're going to send him a thank you card. Maybe you buy him dinner. 
There is nothing from this guy. He doesn't even get his name. Now, eventually Jesus finds him, and Jesus warns him. Then what does he do? Like we said, he tattles on Jesus, which sets up a dominant theme that takes place. The Jews began persecuting Jesus. And John spells this out very clearly in verses 16 to 18. And I think verses 16 through 18 are bringing this whole account together. Now, we just had Sunday school a few minutes ago. And I I like our Sunday school curriculum a lot. I think it is excellent. But we just went through two books on the Gospel of John. There was one through 11, 11, and then 12 through 21. One of my problems with the lesson that we had on this chapter is it was verses 1 through 16. And I think the entire story is building to verses 16 through 18. In fact, it is in that account, in those verses, that we understand, I think, the entire account of what Jesus is doing in this. So see that, because apart from it, I think we're missing the point of the whole thing. The Jews persecute Jesus because he's doing work. He's healing on the Sabbath, because he told this man, carry your mat on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have argued with the Jewish leaders that they're wrong about Sabbath. He could have given them a lecture on how they're elevating their man-made traditions over God's law. That could have been his defense, and that would have been fine and right. He does this in another place where their traditions take precedence. In fact, you see it in Mark chapter 7. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then hear this in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus could have done that here. Jesus could have said, your man-made traditions are putting excessive burdens on the people. But he doesn't do that here. He doesn't debate with them about Sabbath. And let's go even further, church. This is Sabbath, and he doesn't even deny that he's working on the Sabbath. Please don't miss this. This is crucial. Here is his defense in verse 17. You're exactly right. I am working. He admits he's working. He defends his right to work on the Sabbath. And how does he defend it? He grounds it in this truth. My father is working until now, and I am working. This is huge, church. When Sabbath observance is so crucially important that the Jewish leaders eventually codify that into 39 different categories. And Jesus says, I am working. And he's saying in that, it is right for me to work. This fires up the Jews. You see in verse 18, 
they want to kill him. This is not mild. This is not light. They want to kill him. 14 chapters later, that happens. And some of the seed of that is right here in this text. And the reason for it is he makes himself equal with God. So what what does it mean that Jesus says, my father is working and I, uh, my father's working until now and I am working. Well, Jesus used the term, my father. Now maybe if he had said, the holy God is working or the one true God is working, maybe they didn't, Maybe they let it go. But that's not what he did. He purposely calls God my father because he wants to declare to this crowd and to every person who reads the gospel of John that he is equal with God. We must not have a small view of Jesus. Our view of Jesus must be biblically big. So what is happening here? Okay, You all know the Jews knew God created everything. God created the universe in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. But in God's rest, today we, we could say God is still in his rest, but God is also working. And the Jews would not have argued that point. In fact, they would have said they saw no contradiction in God's continued rest and God's continued work we must recognize that God upholds the universe every second God does not take a day off in the sense that everything is dependent upon God everything would fall apart if he didn't sustain it every millisecond so God works in sustaining the universe God keeps the earth just the right distance from the sun so that we neither burn up nor freeze. God makes sure the oxygen level is right on earth so that you and I can breathe, and he does that every day. So God himself cannot break Sabbath. God can rightfully work on Sabbath. And when Jesus says, I am working, he's saying, I am right to work on Sabbath because I am equal with God. And the Jews understood exactly what he is saying. Their logic is correct. Jesus was making himself equal to God, and they knew that was blasphemy for anyone else. For anyone else. But we know For Jesus, he can rightfully work because he is equal with the Father. What the Jews missed, we must not. Their problem was they saw Jesus as too small. They didn't see him rightly. They could envision no possibility that Jesus actually is equal with the Father. Church, we cannot miss that. Do not have a small view of Jesus. In fact, this is going to come up again. Later on in John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Folks, and we come back to John chapter 5. I think this is ultimately why Jesus heals this man. 
as we go forward. This is ultimately why the Jews kill him. This is massive. A crucial part of our understanding of Christ is that he is equal with the Father. He and the Father are one. It is not blasphemy for Jesus to say that because he is equal with God. So now, how do we respond? How do we respond to this Jesus that is fully divine and has all authority? First of all, we need to recognize his authority. The Jews did not. They failed to see. They thought they're in charge. They want him dead. Folks, there's going to be all kinds of voices today tell you to listen to their authority. In fact, so many voices in our culture will tell you, for your life, you are the ultimate authority. You're autonomous. You're in charge. You are the ultimate authority in your life, so live for you. And I'm pleading for you. I know that sounds appealing for a moment, but I'm begging you. Turn away from that because the end is misery. I want to call you away from rebellion against Christ's authority to joyful recognition of it. Carter and Redberg are two commentators. They've, they've written a commentary on the Gospel of John and one of their sentences on this text said, human history is the history of how man has rebelled against authority. Now, they started that off with an example of the IRS and how very few of us just love submitting to the IRS's authority. Now, we do, but most of us don't love that. Maybe that wasn't exactly they talked about the IRS, but I added in because I know most people don't love submitting to the IRS's authority. But I thought about their statement there, and they talked about the garden. When mankind rebelled against God. Some of you may remember the anti-authority type movement of the 60s and 70s. So it's hard to argue against their statement about the history of man being the history of rebellion against authority. They go on to say, the natural bent of our hearts is anti-authority. We're rebels by nature. But then they go to this. Our desire for autonomous self-rule engages in a fierce battle with an appropriate desire to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And my call to you, don't rebel against Jesus. Unbeliever, don't do it. It may sound paradoxical, but true freedom is found in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So recognize his authority. Second application, repent before the authoritative Lord. Now we may overlook this here, but I want you to see the man is sick and it looks like the cause of his sickness is sin. Now, we want to be careful to say that's not always the case. In fact, about the blind man we referenced earlier, four chapters later, we see specifically that it's not any sin that led to his blindness. At the same time, we don't want to go too far and say it's never the case. And in this instance, it seems the man's sin is what led to his sickness. And we understand that in a multitude of ways today. If a person 
is intoxicated, they drive, have a wreck, leads them to be paralyzed. We could say the cause of that sickness is their sin. In fact, the Bible even warns us about a wrong taking of communion leading to some consequences. You hear this in 1 Corinthians 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So there is a place where sickness or, or yeah, sin excuse me, leads to sickness. So here's Jesus. He finds this man and he tells him about the healing of his disease uh, or, or he's healed the man, but then he gives him a warning. I want you to see the warning found there in verse 14. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. By that worse, I don't think Jesus means another sickness. I think he means the judgment of God on unrepentant sinners. Now tragically, at least here, it doesn't look like this man took to heart the warning because he turns on Jesus. We must not repeat that failure. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, God's grace in your life is remarkable. You're breathing this minute because God gave you another breath. We sang about that this morning, about how he fills our lungs. We're to praise him. God gave you another heartbeat out of grace. This God sent Jesus to die on the cross so you could be reconciled to him. Leave your sin for Jesus' lordship. But also to believers. I think we regularly need to examine our lives. Is there sin that we're tolerating? Is there sin running under the surface? Is there sin that we are not killing in our own lives and I would encourage us regularly examine yourself regularly repent of your sin before the Lord ask for his strength to turn away ask for his grace to help you leave that sin so what do we do in recognition of the Lord's authority in this text well first we recognize it second we repent before the Lord and thirdly I just rejoice Rejoice in his authority. Go further than just recognizing. Rejoice in his authority. Folks, nobody in this account that we've read seems to rejoice in Jesus' authority. The Jews reject Jesus' authority and they embark on a path where they're going to kill him. This man who's been healed, he doesn't rejoice in Jesus' authority. He seems to run from it. What about us? The rule of Jesus in our lives is not for our harm, but for our good. Some people wrongfully think that if Jesus is ruling in our lives as Lord, then this must be a life of misery. And I just want you to see, church, that the rule of Jesus in your life is the route to true life. I want our youth, our young people to run from the idea that they're missing out on stuff if they follow Jesus. This is the life of freedom. To follow Jesus is not misery. 
to follow Jesus is joy. Some of you are watching the college baseball World Series. I stopped because I don't really have a dog in the hunt anymore. But a couple of weeks ago or so, there was a, an interview with an Oklahoma softball player. And I found it really interesting. Some of you may have seen it. The interviewer is talking to her. Apparently, Oklahoma softball is, is dominant. They have this long win streak. Um, but he, this interviewer asked her, how do you keep the joy of the game with the pressure of being number one, with the win streak, with the anxiety? How do you keep the joy? And I want to give her credit. Grace Lyons. She responded to that question. The only way you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is if it's from the Lord. What a bold statement to make to national media. It's talking about joy in the game of softball, and she turns it to joy in the Lord. Today and every day, you have a choice about the authority of Jesus. You can reject it, and if you do so, there will be an eternal price to pay. Believer, you can accept Jesus' authority in a begrudging manner, which is an attitude that doesn't lead to joy. Or thirdly, you can rejoice in Jesus' authority in your life, knowing He's far more capable of leading you than you are in leading yourself. And I hope you will choose to rejoice in the Lord's authority. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for what you did here. We are grateful that you did this on Sabbath. Thank you that we see in this text, along with other places in Scripture, that Jesus is equal with God. And Lord, I pray for our people today that there would be a rejoicing in Jesus Christ, a rejoicing in His sovereign rule in their lives if they're followers of Christ. I pray, Lord, for those that maybe have not yet submitted to Jesus. Maybe out of fear that they're going to miss something. I pray that the thing they'll see that they're going to miss is eternal life, joy, freedom, and so many other things that only come in relationship with Christ. And I pray that today would be the day they turn to Jesus in faith. Father, thank you for this passage. Spirit of God, work in hearts at this moment. And as we go out, in Jesus' name, amen.